Imagine with me. Imagine that tomorrow you woke up and discovered that the Constitution of the United States had been amended during the night. And not an amendment that codified what the national temper had made inevitable well beforehand, but rather a wildly unexpected and fundamentally nation-altering piece of legislation. Due to events that you had little to no knowledge of, much less part in, the nation's understanding of justice, rights, freedom, privacy, powers, privileges, and immunities are all turned on their ear. Think of the potential for chaos. Perhaps once what was once illegal is now legal. What was once unregulated is now bound within strict limits. And what of the possible changes to our obligations as citizens or as a body politic that might occur? What if the size of government was cut by 90% or doubled? <laughs> what if it would lead to war or to our ceding sovereign territory to foreign powers or to allowing states to secede from the Union? How would our nation's citizens respond to such an upheaval? And even if we wholly agreed with whatever this change was, what does the day after tomorrow look like? This flight of fancy gives us some idea of the situation that the disciples of Jesus faced on the day after Pentecost. Their understanding of the law, of the history of Israel, and of God himself had been upended. And now they're figuring out how to move forward. And as we continue to look at the habits of the early church this morning, focusing mainly on the habits of breaking bread and prayer, keep in mind just how much change these people were taking upon themselves. I hope you will see and celebrate both why and how they did this, and keep it in mind as our study of Acts progresses. God, we need you to speak. We need you to speak through your word. We need your words to be spoken, not the words of man. Just pray for your spirit to move now, to bring clarity and understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. So why these habits in Acts 2.42? This is where the meat of our sermon this week and last week came from. Four habits that are laid out and then expanded on afterwards in the following verses. We might be here pondering these verses this morning and without much effort making connections to our own Christian habits that seem to be direct correlations. And while there is no denying that this newly constituted people of God are setting forth a lifestyle that has led directly to the habits of contemporary Christians, we would do well to remember the differences between ourselves and the church in Acts chapter 2. This description of the lifestyle of Jesus' disciples in the first day after Pentecost is part of a book, actually two books, in which Luke is seeking to drive home one or more specific points to his correspondent, Theophilus, a man 2,000 years and most of the world's circumference removed from ourselves. So we must do a bit of digging to see how this section of Luke's writing would have been impactful then before making the connections, as we ought, to ourselves. 
Last week, Pastor Mike spoke on the apostles' teaching. Remember that there is no New Testament for this church to read and understand the fullness of what the bodily ministry of Jesus meant, how it affected the beliefs that they had followed up until the day of Pentecost. And remember, this church consists almost entirely of those previously described as devout Jews. They already have a rich theological tradition, well-established and indeed exhaustive in its bearing upon their lifestyle. Now everything has changed. So they hang on the apostles' words, hearing how Jesus recast the law with his self at the center, reshaped the attitudes and motivations of the follower of God to reflect his example, and completely upended their understanding of righteousness as being found in him alone. Pastor Mike also examined these new Christians' devotion to the fellowship. Remember that this church has no traditions of its own, and it has no cultural support as we still do, with thousands of years of Christian history and a deeply Judeo-Christian ethos underpinning the societal context for our communal identity. All these people have is each other, and their shared belief that Jesus is the Christ, and that now he is their Lord. These habits, along with the two that I'm going to get into in just a moment, are, in a pragmatic sense, how this church is binding itself together when they have nothing else to hold on to. They are what keep the early church moving ahead, forging a new path never before walked by humanity. And as we will examine later on, these habits are the result of a fundamentally life-altering reality within the church, the presence of the Holy Spirit. But first, the breaking of bread and prayers. If hanging on the apostles' teaching is reforming the early church's understanding of God's law and God's love, and if devoting themselves to the fellowship, to living on mission together for Christ, is casting a vision for this assembly's future, then the breaking of bread and prayers might simply be seen as the practical first steps that the early church took in continuing their day-to-day lives in the city of Jerusalem after Pentecost. Of the four habits, the breaking of bread is perhaps the most obscure in terms of what exactly the phrase is referring to. Verse 46 states that they were breaking bread in their homes and that they received their food with glad and generous hearts. And this might bring to our minds visions of communal meals with friends or family. But having our traditions to fall back on and the Gospels to guide us, I'm sure many, if not all of us, read that passage and quickly wondered if this was talking about the Lord's Supper, about communion. I would venture to say it includes both, or that among the regular gathering to feed their bodies, there was a consistent, if not constant, attitude of celebration, an eager obedience to Jesus' command in the upper room to remember. But how do these thousands of converts from across the world remember something that many hadn't even been involved in? Well, how do we? What does it mean to remember during the Lord's Supper? Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 
is teaching a very confused church about the Lord's Supper. After explaining how the behavior of the Corinthian church during what they called the Lord's Supper was in fact nothing like the gathering of communal remembrance it should be, Paul quoted to them Jesus' own words to the apostles. And this is very often the portion of Scripture that we hear on Sunday during a service of communion. Paul quotes Jesus concerning the bread and concerning the wine, with the elements from the Jewish Passover meal now exalted as representations of his own self in the context of his imminent crucifixion. And each statement ending with a command to take the bread and the wine in remembrance of me. Paul follows this up, breaking away from his description of the Last Supper to address the Corinthians once again in chapter 11, verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we gather for communion, we aren't remembering what Jesus said in the upper room. Rather, we proclaim that Jesus did die, that his body was broken, and his blood was poured out. And we mirror the conviction of the 3,000 on the day of Pentecost and proclaim that we put him there, that because of our sin, Christ went to the cross and offered himself in our place. And having made that confession upon hearing Peter's sermon, I do not see how the breaking of bread in the early church, even if it took the form of meals shared together for the nourishing of their bodies, did not contain an atmosphere of awe at what had been done for them. And perhaps it's worth it for us to re-examine our own thoughts and attitudes during our daily meals, in addition to taking part in communion. These disciples are taking their first steps in following Christ. Many are probably trying to figure out how they will return to their various homes across the world. And it's likely some are wondering how they can rebuild their lives around the church in Jerusalem. But regardless of what changes lay ahead, they took this basic part of living, breaking bread, eating, and made it part of their Christian identity, a habit that would keep them connected to each other and to the gospel that had saved them. What about prayers? This is likely the area that the early church had the easiest time adapting to their new understanding and circumstances. Prayer was already deeply ingrained in the Jewish culture. Observers of the Jewish religion recited prayers throughout the day regarding all manner of things. And the Jewish Shema, the proclamation that Yahweh was the God of Israel, was expected to be prayed by all both morning and evening. It is very likely that this practice was continued in the early church. These devout Jews' understanding of Yahweh had been changed in their accepting Jesus as the Son of God. But their reverence for the God of Abraham, the God whose temple was in Jerusalem, was the same. We see again in verse 46 that they were attending the temple daily. And perhaps it was the most convenient space for hundreds or thousands to gather in a crowded city. But there is no reason to believe that these Jewish Christians would not have still been eager to join in the congregational prayers and listen to the readings from Scripture and remember the God of David 
as they stood upon the ground that Israel's mightiest king, up until recently, had selected for the house of the Lord. At the same time, these Christians were carrying out their worship in a new way and for a new reason. Yes, the forms were likely very similar at times to what they had been before. But now their prayer was more than just giving the respect to God that he deserved, as it might have been. More than obedience to the law, or even joyful obedience to the law. It was more than cries to the God whose glory had departed from the temple. Because God's glory had returned. God's glory had walked up that same hill and through those same gates, had joined in the prayerful declarations of truth regarding himself, and had taught upon the same stones where his followers now gathered. And God's glory was now being worked through them via the Holy Spirit. This is what made all the difference in the early church. And in our wild imaginings of a country whose constitution had been suddenly and vastly altered, we know that chaos would follow. Indeed, it's almost certain that such a fundamental change would lead to America's ruin, unless there was some great unifying force holding us together. For the early church, the Holy Spirit was that force. And not only did it unify, it animated. And not only did it animate, it empowered. To take on this new life in Christ was only possible because the Spirit Christ sent dwelt in them. Look at verse 43 of our text. And awe came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. This is the work of the Spirit. It affirmed the truth of the message and drove them to make the changes needed to live their lives according to Christ's message of repentance. And even with thousands of years of tradition and a socio-political structure to comfort and protect us, we still need God's Spirit in order to live our lives for Christ. As we see the early church in Acts, beginning with these simple, if not always easy, habits, we must see it as the result of the Holy Spirit. Remember that Acts is about what Jesus taught and Jesus did. It is loose continuance of the gospel story. It was the Holy Spirit that brought conviction upon the 3,000 on Pentecost. It was God's Spirit who brought the apostles' teaching to life and who made the new converts hunger to hear more, seeing in the Old Testament writing the glorious foreshadowing of their newly beloved Christ. It was God's Spirit that bound them to each other, growing in them the fruit of kindness expressed through generosity in caring for one another. God's Spirit gave their communal life new meaning, making their social interaction a joyous act of God. Every meal a celebration, as the message paraphrase describes verse 46 of Acts 2. And within those meals, within the ritual prayers and the eagerness of the believers to go to the temple of God daily, God's Spirit was welling up in the hearts of his people the proclamation that would echo to every corner of the globe. Jesus. Jesus, both Lord and Christ, the image of the invisible God. Jesus, the one who was slain for us. Jesus, who fulfilled the law. Jesus, who has given new life. These habits are a product of devotion. 
devotion, that state of being deeply attached to in heart, loyal to, consecrated to, in this case, to a person. They devoted themselves to these habits because they were devoted to Jesus. Is this how you see yourself? With sober reflection, can you say that your life, your habits, the things that you actually do on a day-to-day basis are expressions of devotion to Jesus Christ? Maybe you love to poke around in the Bible. Maybe it excites you that the amount of Christian literature in the world is staggering. But are you devoted to God's word? We too have the apostles' teaching in the New Testament and the holy words of God from the Old Testament. And maybe we read it, but are we devoted to it? Do we obey it? Consider what obedience to God's word cost the apostles. If you aren't willing and ready to die for the sake of the gospel, are you really devoted to Jesus and his command to take up your cross? Your cross is not talking about the burdens of life in a fallen world. It is speaking directly to God's will for your life as his servant, whatever that may be. Are you devoted to the fellowship? Not just eager to see the people in church that we enjoy spending time with, but bound to the church of God by the power of the Holy Spirit and the understanding that in the body of Christ, we have what cannot be found elsewhere. You can go to close friends or family and receive sympathy and good advice and necessary hugs, but it is among the body that the gifts of God's Spirit are made manifest for the building up of its members. And if we refuse to join our lives together with that body, we are missing out on so much. Not only that, but even more tragically, we are missing out on the opportunity to be used of God to build up others. Church of God, is the breaking of bread an act of worship in your life? Whether it be inviting your brothers and sisters to share the blessings of God's provision or taking part at communion at church, do you proclaim Jesus in your daily life? And this, I believe, is a principle that can be expanded. The Lord's Supper as an ordinance of the church is unique and necessary and by all Christians with joy and reverence. But the act of proclaiming the work of Christ should apply to your entire life, which may be part of the reason that Jesus attached this act of remembrance to such a mundane act as eating and drinking. Are you devoted to proclaiming Jesus Christ, risen and ready to save all who believe? And prayer. Are you devoted to prayer? God is not far off in heaven looking at a productivity chart for your life and waiting for you to tick off boxes according to the instructions he sent out. God is here with us, desiring intimate and terrifyingly personal relationship with us. Do you bear your soul to God? Do you go to him in every circumstance, holding nothing back, 
inviting him to be a part of everything you are and you do, and acknowledging your need for him and his lordship over you through constant communication. Are you devoted to Jesus? You can't be without his spirit in you. Remember as we go through Acts, this is the work of the Spirit. And if you're here this morning and you haven't experienced this kind of closeness to God in your life, if you have questions, please ask them. Our elders will be in the front for a bit after the end of the service, and they would love to talk with you. Elders, would you stand up for just a moment? Just Thank you. Balcony in the back. Thank you very much. The presence of the Holy Spirit is the gift of God for those who believe. Those who believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and that his death and resurrection are the solution to our lives not being what they ought to be. I pray that this body, that everyone in this room, would be eager to listen to God's Spirit as it speaks through his word and through each other. Not that our lives would look Christian, which is honestly not that hard to fake if we never connect with anyone, but that our hearts would be devoted to God, that we would be bound together in the unity of the Spirit, and that we would carry on the work of Christ, even as the church in Acts did. Pray with me. Mighty God, thank you for your work in this world. Thank you for this testimony of what you did in ordinary, sinful beings, how you changed them, how you gave them a new vision for life, a new understanding, how you empowered them by your Holy Spirit to go forth and to spread the gospel in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Thank you that we get to be the product of that, that we get to be part of of their work, the result of their faithfulness, and now partakers of that same mission. May we look to your spirit. May we hunger for you. May we be bold to answer your call. Bold to obey no matter the cost. God, as we continue to see and act what you are doing in the world at this time, may we also be eager to see what you're doing in us now. And I pray that as we go from here, we will be eager to obey, to live it out, to be devoted to you, and to proclaim you. Be with us now and as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.